Welcome to Uplift, everyone. My name is Kyle. This message tonight is going to be streamed on our Sunday morning online Bible class called The Conversation. The audio will be on our podcast called Anchor Point beginning on Monday. So however you have found us, welcome. I'm glad you're here. This is the final message in our series called Crash Course. Over the past four weeks, we've looked at the big anchors of our faith in bite-sized chunks, and we've talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. <clears throat> we've talked about the resurrection of Jesus, and we've also talked about the wrath of God. You can find all of those on our website, on our YouTube channel. You can also find them on our podcast. For this final message in this four-week series, we're going to take a crash course on the return of Jesus. By the way, this series, we'll probably pick this up again sometime later this year and do four more big anchors of our faith. I really like it. I think it's been, uh, it's been great fun and tons of good. So final crash course, we're going to be talking about the return of Jesus. You better buckle up. We're starting right now. Let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 9. It's in, printed in your outline. It's going to be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. This is going to be our text from which we'll talk tonight. Here we go. And just... As it is appointed for man, for humanity, for humans to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, <clears throat> but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, this verse, I told you, we're jumping right in. Buckle up. This has three weighty things to say about the return of Jesus. And then at the end of this, we're going to talk about all three. We're going to end with a final matter of encouragement. So that's our roadmap. Three weighty things about the return of Jesus and a final encouragement. So there's much to cover, just a little bit of time in which to cover it. So let's get started. The first big thing that this passage has to say about the return of Jesus is death, our death not a subject we talk about or even like to talk about very often. The writer here mentions that people, that humanity, men and women, boys and girls, we die. Sometimes it's okay to see that again, to understand that. And believe it or not, there are four critical things that this verse actually says about death in these couple of verses. And we're going to talk about all four of those. I think they're important. The first is this. <clears throat> Death is unrepeatable. We die once. We die once. I'm not going to elaborate on that right here. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But I think we need to understand that it is unrepeatable. Second, death is by appointment. Death is by appointment. Now, this is important. We are appointed to die. We're appointed to die. And if we're honest, if we're honest, this appointment is probably not one that we would actually make on our own. The, fun, the finality of life, of all that is good here, even the surrendering of all that is bad here is not necessarily something for which we want to register. It might be fearful to us. And here's why I think we hesitate to talk about death and even ignore that we die by appointment. We have a drive to create beauty and culture. 
And this is actually given to us through Adam and Eve. And it's included in their just punishment for their first sin. Let me show you this. This is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, what is at best a punishment here? Now, listen carefully. It's also a license to create. That's what it is, to build. Adam and Eve, they were in the garden of God. They had no need to create and build. Everything was there. They had to work, but there was nothing to build there. There was nothing to create there. Nothing to work for. Yet outside of the garden, that's all they did. That's all we do. And we do this actually for the better part of our adult lives. We build and we create. And if we're blessed, we enjoy the things we build and create. But we also forget that all that we build and create is actually a part of the punishment for sin. A life of work and labor And toil, you know this, it's exhausting. Wears us out. Even in spite of that, though, we are seduced to remain here, to continue to build. We don't want to die. We don't want to leave the things that we've built. Yet this is the truth of the gospel. Romans 8 says that all of creation groans in anticipation of Jesus' return. Everything that's built and created is waiting for the return of Jesus. In that, we have an appointment with death. Everything that we built and created, we will leave. We don't like to talk about it, but we'll leave it. Here's the third thing this passage says about death. Death is inescapable. It's inescapable. We learn this from the New Testament book of Romans, where Paul explains, we'll talk about Adam and Eve again, exactly what happened to Adam and Eve when they were expelled from the garden. Look at this. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. God has made death an inescapable part of life. It's an appointment we're all going to keep. This was the warning both Adam and Eve received in the garden if they ate from the forbidden tree. If you eat it, what's going to happen? You're going to die. They ate of that tree, and God made good on that warning. Here's the fourth thing this passage says about death. All this is here. Death is ordained. This is a big one. And I told you at the outset of this series, there's going to be some apologetics, but also some theology. This is a little theology, a little word about God, a little study into the depths of who God is. Death, it's not just a product of the circle of life, nor is life the only part of our existence that's formed with purpose. Neither our lives nor our deaths are happenstance. Now, that's a big one. I want you to chew on that for a minute. Our lives are not merely the result of consummation, nor are our deaths merely the result of tragedy or old age. And here's how I know this. This is a big passage in Scripture, and it's one you need to know. It's from Psalm chapter 139, 
And we're going to start reading in verse 13. This might be familiar. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, you know this, for I am what? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now look at this. This is a big one. And if you have a real Bible, you need to underline this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Now we're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's talk about verse 14 for a minute because we love verse 14. We love it. We love that we were formed fearfully and wonderfully in our mother's wombs with purpose. We like that. We love it. We love that we are not the product of some accident. And you know this, we use this passage, especially when we speak against abortion. God does not create mistakes or accidents. Life is valuable. All of life is valuable. All of life is fearfully and wonderfully made. But we're not as favorable to verse 16. You don't ever hear that one quoted when we quote verse 14, right? Listen again, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet when as yet there was none of them. We aren't as favorable to verse 16 because we are actually kind of afraid of its implications, I think. I think we are. <clears throat> we are in awe of the implications of our formation, but we are afraid of the implications of our death. We've credited much of death to natural circumstances or tragic accidents. But Scripture attests that while God is intricately and intentionally involved with purpose in our conception, God is also intricately and intentionally involved in our death. It's all right there. We do not escape God. We can't escape God. Whether we believe in him or not, there is no philosophy that can compete with this picture of life. We live by the hand of God and we die by the hand of God. God has ordained a certain number of days for each of us before we were ever conceived that ought to make us the freest people in the world. Absolutely. Now, after being armed, with all of this good information about death, let's revisit the point that death is unrepeatable. I told you we we're going to come back to this. We die once. We die one time. Now, various religions of the world find comfort in a cyclical version of death that we may die and return again to this life, that we are, you've heard of this word, that we are reincarnated. You might have some friends who believe that. But Scripture attests that the total number of days, the total amount of our time alive is ordained before we even live one day. None of us can outlive the number of days which we've been ordained to live. We'll not die one day sooner, nor will we die one day later, nor will we return to this life after death to die again. There's no reincarnation. We die once, and we die on time, as did Jesus. This is the beauty of this passage. 
the, 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 the beginning parts of these two verses parallel our life with Jesus. Jesus was mortal. He was human, fully divine, fully human. And the number of his days for his life were written in the same book where the number of days of our lives are written. And that's what's so amazing about Jesus and why we're talking about his return here. So four things about death then before we move on. It's unrepeatable, it's by appointment, it's inescapable, and it's ordained. I told you three weighty things. There's the first. Here's the second weighty thing about this passage. The second weighty thing in this passage is this. It's judgment. It's judgment. Let's read this again. Back to Hebrews chapter 9. As, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Man, judgment. Judgment. What a sobering concept. Nobody likes to be judged for anything. But there is a moment of judgment after we die, which implies one very critical aspect of death we didn't talk about a minute ago, but it's this. That death is not the end of our consciousness. We aren't buried or cremated to an everlasting deconstruction of our physical matter. We survive death. Y'all, we survive it. Our bodies are buried, but we survive death. And Scripture says we face a judgment. Now, I want you to listen to this. Big theology here, but this is important. This judgment is not a judgment of our worth. Forget what you've learned. It's not a judgment of our worth. We will not stand before God and Him decide whether or not we are worthy for salvation forever in eternity with Him. Here's why. Our worth has already been settled. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 claim that Jesus bore the wrath of God, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. You are already worth the sacrifice, the death of Jesus. Not only you, but even our unbelieving friends are already worth that. God died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We aren't judged based upon the measure of our sin. That's not what this judgment is. Don't misread this. Don't mishear the gospel. The punishment for our sins has already been paid. It's already been paid. This judgment is the judgment of separation, of purification. In fact, if, you, if you're in your Bibles, you can turn to this. We'll have it on the screen. The writer of Hebrews actually explains this one chapter later where this judgment is actually defined. Let's read this. This is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Look what the writer says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, we know this. The Bible's full of metaphors. We know this. This is not a punishment. That's not, what, that's not what this is. It's a way of describing an awful situation, right? The Bible also says that there is darkness later. Well, if you have fire and you have darkness, you can't have them both together, right? There are, these are metaphors. 
what the writer says here is that those who continue to sin, who revel in sin, who enjoy sin, who by their own actions suppress the truth of God's existence, Paul says that in Romans chapter 1, are those who receive the force of this judgment. I want you to listen to how sobering this is. On the one hand, listen, this is, incre- this is pretty incredible. Jesus' death is enough. It's enough. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. We just read this. Jesus died how many times? One time. That's enough. That is enough to satisfy the wrath of God against the sins of every human to live throughout all of time. One time. That's it. But listen to this. This is a big one. On the other hand, Jesus' atoning death is not enough. Hang on. I want you to listen carefully to my words here. I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus died for all sin. His sacrifice is enough. But listen, from the perspective of those who suppress the truth, Jesus' death isn't enough. They walk away from it. They don't care. It's apathy. Because in that situation, it's not enough to protect those who deny his existence anyway. It doesn't It doesn't matter. It's not, Jesus' death is not designed to do that. Jesus' death is designed to be the moment when Jesus becomes sin, all sin. Every lie, every abuse, every murder, every heinous act, every angry word, every gossip, it's all there. It was all born, the punishment for every one of those was born on the cross. The writer of Hebrews said it. Listen to this, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. And in the prior verse, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, the writer says it with even more force. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And if, let's keep going. Paul said it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a miraculous, necessary exchange. But not everybody agrees with this. You and I know people like this. Not everybody believes with the necess- in the necessity of this exchange. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 again. For if we go on sinning deliberately, 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 after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the truth is that God is real, He's, He exists. That's Romans chapter 1, right? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There are people who do not see the necessity of Jesus' atoning death, of his substitutionary death. And for them, Jesus' death is not enough. And it is for them that this vengeful, fiery judgment awaits. It's a fire of purity. It's of cleansing, of purifying the house of God, but it's not for those who believe. This is the moment in Romans chapter 1 when it says that God gives them up. Their trajectory is separation from God forever and ever. And that is the moment when that separation occurs. Here's the third weighty part of this passage. And it's this. It's pretty simple. 
This is the good news. It's Jesus' return. And it's specifically what he does when he returns. Let's read this again. We're going to keep reading it. It's on your outline. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Oh, look at this. This is gospel. Will, what, what's he going to do? He's going to appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, praise God. Jesus appears a second time, and his return has one specific purpose, and it's this, to save those who eagerly wait for him. Oh, I love this. Jesus' return, again, it's not to deal with sin. He's already dealt with sin. He's already done that. Jesus' work is finished. Y'all, it's finished. Salvation is completed. There's no further work that has to be done to save you, to save us. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews deals with this finished work of Jesus, how he describes it. This is in Hebrews chapter 12. It's the first couple of verses. Look at this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. I told you there's freedom in Jesus, right? Which which clings so closely. This is, you see all this coming together, right? If our days are ordained, let's get rid of this stuff. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and look where he is. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that final descriptive phrase, it's key here. Jesus is, where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's two things here, two big ones. Number one, only a living person can sit down. Say that again. Only a living person can sit down. Jesus is alive. He's sitting. He's seated at the right hand of God. And two, only one whose work is finished can be seated. Those of you that still work, what do you do when you come into the house at the end of a long day? You sit down because your work's over. That's what this passage means. There is no more saving Jesus can do. He's done it all. So when Jesus returns, he returns to do one thing, to save those who eagerly wait for him, to rescue them. Jesus comes not as a destroyer, but he comes as a savior. And he comes with saving mercy. There's no need to deal with sin. He's dealt with it. This is no cleanup job. And he gathers, look at this. I love that. He gathers those who eagerly wait for him. For those who do not in their best moments of life or in their final moments before death, for those who do not fear Jesus' return or who do not fear death, who do not fear because fear, you know what it is? It's the great paralyzer. And let me tell you something, for those of us who struggle with anxiety and fear, quicken heartbeats and worry, Jesus died to end that in your life. He died. This is from the writer of Hebrews. I love Hebrews. We may have to do a, sermon, a series on Hebrews. Listen to this. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. And I told you this going to, we're going to end with a final word of encouragement. Here it is. Hebrews chapter 2, verse beginning in verse 14. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And look at verse 15, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus' death destroyed our fear of death. We have, I don't know if you thought about it, your final moments on this planet, the final breaths, I'm sure we thought about it. In those moments, if you believe in Jesus and have trusted in his saving grace, run to Jesus. You have no reason to be afraid at that moment. Not one reason. Fear, fear is a cruel master. It enslaves us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. It enslaves us because, because listen, let's be honest. Sometimes fear is useful. God gave us fear. It's given to us by God to know when a situation can be dangerous, when it can be harmful. But fear, what Hebrews says is the devil can twist that. And fear becomes twisted and redefined into a parody of eternity that excludes death, makes us afraid to die. Jesus' death and resurrection takes that from us. Death, that from, that from which we flee, does not have the final word. It does not. So here's how we're going to end this series, straight out of Hebrews. And it's the one question that you're going to need to answer for yourself. Do you eagerly wait for Jesus' return? Do you eagerly wait for that? Remember that old hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Remember this great line? And the things of this world, what do they do? They grow strangely dim, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I want to encourage you to eagerly anticipate Jesus' return. Pray for it. Lord, come quickly. Oh man, will that not be glorious? Will that not be glorious? Praise the Lord for his return.